um, here in chapter 11, starting in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This is God's Word. So, uh, is there such a thing as a friend at midnight? I mean, does that even exist, right? A midnight call is either going to reveal the depth of your friendship or the desperation of the caller. Sometimes sometimes both. Now, think just for a moment of who you would call in the middle of the night. Something unexpected has happened, uh, and you need help. Think of the person right now in your mind that you would call in the middle of the night. Now, would you expect your alleged friend to answer by telling you what time it is? You know, and you say, oh, thanks, my Apple Watch ran out of juice and I just needed to know and hang up. Or would you expect them to respond with, what's the matter? What's wrong? How can I help you? Um, it's a difference, right, between you needing to call someone at midnight and between receiving a call at midnight. You know, one thing that's admirable about the relationship between Buzz and Woody is this indelible bond that they have, right? And even in the song that's being sung, you've got a friend in me, no matter what, no matter when. I wonder, are there people in your life right now that you could share the sentiment that is expressed in this song? Uh, are there others who you would sing the song in a modified version? Yes, you have a friend in me between normal business hours, excluding weekends and holidays. It's quite a thing to think about this. An hour of need, of desperate need, a midnight friend. So our text today is a short parable, and it's unique to the gospel of Luke. But that's not the only reason why it's unique. It's unique in some very intriguing ways. It, it seems rather straightforward, like we would understand what the parable is about, the main point. But as we're going to see, the main point of the parable has everything to do with which English translation of the Bible you're reading from. So let's dive in here and take a look at what's happening. Now, before us is an intriguing, real-life scenario for the culture of this day. This is something that probably happened with quite frequency. And so what Jesus is doing is He's turning this possibility into a parable on prayer. So, uh, to appreciate what's happening here in this parable, for us to understand it as current day readers, we have to understand a little bit about the culture of this day. First, food was not readily available. Just wasn't. 
I mean, DoorDash and Grubhub, they're just still concepts at this point. And so what would happen is that you would bake bread in the morning, and if you ran out, you ran out. You didn't have any more. Now, the second thing to keep in mind is that bread was probably not the meal. Bread is more like the knife and the fork for the meal with how they ate in that day. And so it's quite possible that the the friend is going to someone at midnight and saying, hey, I've run out of forks and knives. Can you help me? Now, the third thing that you have to understand is that during this time, most homes only had one room. They only had one room. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, he's, he's describing a real-life situation. So to wake up one person meant waking up everyone else in the house. So if you think about it just from a logistic standpoint, to, to get up, to, to unbar the door, to unlock the door, to light the candles and find bread means that you have to disturb the peace of your own house in order to provide for the welfare or the shalom of another. It's a lot to ask. And then fourth, we don't really understand much in our modern world today the value that was placed in this culture in regards to hospitality. Uh, It was a foundational pillar of their life. Hospitality. Hospitality. You see, in this day, both the individual and the community had a responsibility to provide hospitality for anyone who needed it. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples to count on this kind of hospitality as they traveled from town to town, place to place, house to house. So great was the value and the importance of hospitality in this culture. Listen to this. It was understood that a guest had a right to such hospitality. Isn't that something? That it was their right to receive this kind of hospitality. (laughs) You know, our culture may be more advanced in some areas, but there's certainly a lot to be learned from the way things used to be. Uh, Anyone grow up where before your parents went to church, a roast was put in the oven? And you didn't know who was coming over for lunch. Just so happens that whoever was there, that's what the meal was for. Yeah. Now, here's where this is really intriguing. And we struggle in our modern culture to understand this. Providing for the needs of someone else. It was considered a moral and ethical responsibility. And so what Jesus is doing is... He's calling upon this responsibility in the parable of the Good Samaritan with just a few stories in chapter 10 before this. And so in both of these parables, the story of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the friend at midnight, Jesus is communicating the same thing. He's he's leaning into and he's lifting up a cultural expectation of the day. 
that this culture demanded that each member of the community would give up an individual right for the well-being and the welfare of another. Our culture demands the opposite. See? Our culture also makes demands, but our culture says that my individual right is more important than the well-being and welfare of another. So is it any surprise, is it any wonder that the fabric of our community and the pillar of shalom lies torn and broken at our feet? Now this parable is interesting because there is a demand, there's a dilemma, and there's a twist. And most parables have that exact same thing. So the demand is, is really interesting. The demand is that you had to think about the needs of another above your own comfort. That you had to consider the needs of another even when it was inconvenient for you. So that's the demand. The dilemma is fascinating. Okay? So watch, watch the logic here. To be a good neighbor, you had to be a bad neighbor and wake up your sleeping neighbor so they could be a good neighbor. It's really interesting. And, and so what's fascinating about this dilemma is that, that the one who is bothered at an inopportune time must in turn bother another at an inopportune time so that together they can fulfill their moral and ethical responsibility to provide for the needs of someone else. So that's the demand, the dilemma. Now here's, here's the twist. The twist in this parable is, is found in the obligation. Okay? Both the surprised neighbor and the sleeping neighbor are bound by a cultural obligation to help. So here's the twist. The host has a choice. Okay? He can be rude by not welcoming the guest, or he can be rude by waking up his neighbor. That's the choice. And the sleeping neighbor also has a choice. The sleeping neighbor, he can be rude by denying the need of the neighbor who comes to him, or he can face the shame and reproach of the community when word gets out the next day that he did nothing to help someone in need. All right, so what's the main point of this parable? Well, would it surprise you that there are many plausible explanations? I mean, you start reading and you start looking at other people who have wrestled with this, and there's at least four plausible explanations for the point that Jesus is trying to make. So, Rather than wade through all of that, I'm going to show you the one that makes the most sense to me that I see as consistent with the text, but more importantly, consistent with the character of God, of who He is. Now, I'm not saying that you have to see it exactly this way for us to be friends, and I'm even willing to bother you in the middle of the night to show you how important our friendship is. Right? The central point of the parable is it's, it depends on one difficult, ambiguous word to translate. 
you know what that means, right? I wish I had some theme music right now. It means it's time for fun with Greek. Fun with Greek. Who's excited, right? I know. Settle down, settle down, settle down. Now, if you look again at verse 8 in your Bible, look at the reason that Jesus gives for the sleeping neighbor to help the neighbor. The request will be granted not because of friendship, but because of impudence. Now, what does this mean? Well, first, it means they're not that good of friends. Right? Jesus says he won't answer, won't honor the request out of friendship. That means that one neighbor doesn't like the neighbor very much. They're not that good of friends. It's, it's like Larry says, right? Josh and I have known each other for 30 years, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for Josh. And Josh says, that's right. Larry and I have known each other for 30 years, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for Larry. And Larry says, pretty much it's been 30 years of not doing anything for each other. So they're not that good of friends in the final analysis. Jesus says the neighbor won't respond out of friendship, so we ask, if not because of friendship, why does the sleeping neighbor help? Now, the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, says because of his impudence. But what does that word mean? So the Greek word that's being used here is a very difficult word to translate. It's a heavily nuanced word, and it carries at least two opposite meanings at the same time. And so what happens is, depending on your English translation of the Bible, it's going to yield different meanings, and it's going to lead you to different points that the parable is making. So you just have to understand that the word choice that's given in English affects the direction of the parable. So the word impudence, it actually means impertinence, right? And that clears it right up, doesn't it? Right? Problem solved. The word impertinence, it means a lack of respect or rudeness. A lack of respect or rudeness. The King James Version says importunity and the NISB says persistence. Now, all right, just, this is going to be quick, so, so, so hang with me. Importunity, this one side of the word, it means persistence to the point of being annoying. That's what it means. It's not just persistence. It's persistence to the point of being annoying. So, Think about uh, relentless calls from telemarketers at dinner time. Yeah? Uh, think about commercials for adult problems in the middle of family movie night. Uh, let's see. Think about spam texts to your mobile devices. Oh, wait, here's one. Think about technical problems during a live stream in a church service. Annoying. 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 So these words, impudence, impertinence, importunity, persistence, I mean, if we use these first round spelling B words, don't hate on the B, Sean, then is this really a good concept of explaining how prayer works? If we're using those words, what are we saying about prayer and what are we saying about God? 
The neighbor helps because of a lack of respect, because of a lack, because of rudeness. Is that really how prayer works? Folks, is this really the point of the parable? Is Jesus really saying that God does not answer prayer based on friendship or relationship because he doesn't really like us? That God answers prayer only if you show him a lack of respect? only if you are annoying enough, and then he'll help you to get rid of you. I mean, can this really be what Jesus is teaching here, that God answers prayer if we're persistently annoying, that God answers prayer if you're rude enough, that God answers prayer just to get you to quit bothering him? Is anyone else bothered by that idea? See, because of what it says about God, what it says about God. So I think the better question must be, the better question has to be, is this consistent with the character of God? Is this point, is this about who God is? So we have to look at the attributes of his character, and this cannot be how prayer works. So remember I said this Greek word has a double meaning at the same time. The second part of this meaning of the word, it means shameless. Shameless. Think about it. Shameless. Now, if you're reading from the NIV version of the Bible, and depending on what year of the NIV, the 1994 edition, it was a very good year, the 1994 edition of the NIV says, because of the man's boldness, the request will be answered. Now, this is polite. And it preaches well if the point of the parable is that you've got to be bold and persistent in prayer. But I don't think that's the point of this parable. The 2011 version of the NIV, it does a really good job of trying to capture the nuance of the word because it says because of your shameless audacity. Shameless audacity. Now, it's intriguing because it does try to capture at the same time both sides of this Greek word, but for me it doesn't resolve the struggle because it still seems to suggest that prayers are answered based on our shameless audacity. So why are English translations all over the map here? Here's why. Because shameless is viewed as a negative quality. So most Bible translations opt for persistence because persistence seems like a positive quality. And so when you put those two together, shameless and persistent, uh, most Bible translators say, this sounds better, it sounds positive, this sounds negative, let's go with this one. I wonder, is it a negative thing to shamelessly come before God in an hour of desperate need and cry out to him and say, you are the only help. You're my only hope. You're the only one that I can trust and call upon and lean into in this hour of my great need. No, right? There's no, there's no shame there. And so because persistence sounds better, because it sounds better to do this, it sounds more faithful. But if you look again at the parable, notice that an answer has already been given. 
And the answer is no. The answer is no. The person says, no, not going to help you. So if we take this to mean that all you have to do is, is wear God down, then what this tells us is that the point of the parable is if you don't like the first answer you get from God, then all you have to do is wear Him down and eventually you're going to get what you asked for in the first place. Hmm. What does that say about God? I mean, how much... Right? How much trust and confidence can we really have if that's how prayer works? So there's another way to look at this parable. The most popular way is to say, just be persistent, be persistent, be persistent. You know, eventually you'll get what you want. Persistent is the secret sauce to prayer. But the other way to look at this is that this word is not about the person who's coming to ask. The, person is, the word is about the person who's saying yes or saying no. It's about the person who's being come to. And so we can look at this in this way, that what this parable is trying to teach us is something about the goodness of God. That the goodness of God is the point of this teaching of Jesus. That the goodness of God is what Jesus is trying to communicate with this of one of three examples after teaching his disciples how to pray. In other words, the sleeping friend does not respond because of the persistence of an annoying friend. The sleeping friend in this parable responds because it would be a shameless action to deny someone in need. It would be shameless to do that. See? Now we're getting closer to aligning the point of the parable with the character of God. So I really love the way Michael Card addresses this in his commentary on Luke, which is one of the most accessible commentaries I've ever read. He says, I like the idea that our confidence in prayer should come not from us getting it right, that is, if we knock long enough, the door will open, but rather from the knowledge that the one who sometimes seems to be sleeping will answer because of his commitment to doing what he has promised. Yes. Right? Amen. Okay. Just because I like an idea doesn't make it right. And just because I don't like an idea doesn't make it wrong. So we go back to what I've said has to be the most important thing, the most important question. Which application is more consistent with the character of God? So let me ask you this. How much confidence can we really have in prayer if it's about our work? How much confidence can we have, how much trust can we have in God if it's about us wearing him down. See, religion may teach us persistence. And religion teaches us that prayer is about my work. It's about my words. It's about my faith. It's about saying it the right way and saying it the right time and the right number of times. Self-salvation always leads to ruin. 
Don't you see? Religion takes what is viewed as a positive quality, persistence, and turns it into a negative quality. But the gospel teaches us this wonderful thing about being shameless. The gospel teaches us that because it's about His work, because it's about His Word, because it's about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that we can, without any fear, without any reservation, without any shame, come to the God who loves us and has our well-being as His ultimate goal for us, and we can speak to Him as a true friend. So the gospel takes what is viewed as a negative quality, shameless, and turns it into a positive quality. So yes, be bold. Be persistent in pursuing the heart of God. Be persistent in practicing this discipline, this conversation with God. No child of the Father should ever feel any shame in coming to Him at any time, in any place, to talk about anything. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of His work for our work. So you want to do something about your prayer life? Well, I mean, you can change the way you pray, certainly, but let me suggest this. Why don't instead you change the God you're praying to? Why don't you come to Him out of who He is? in His goodness, in the graciousness of who He is. Suppose you are awakened in the middle of the night. Surprise! Friends from out of town, they didn't tell you they were coming, and they're knocking on your door in the middle of the night, tired and weary and hungry from their journey. They depend on you for gracious hospitality, but you don't have what you need to feed them. But your neighbor might. But it's the middle of the night, it's dark, his house is locked up, you're pretty sure he has a mean chihuahua, it's alarmed, it's all barred up, it's all secured, he's asleep, his family is asleep, and even though you go to the same church, he doesn't particularly like you. He won't help you even out of friendship. But he doesn't want to look bad to the rest of the church. He doesn't want to risk his reputation. So he gets up, enduring disruption, to avoid shame. And he gives you everything you need to feed your guests. So, how much more? Right? How much more can you come to a God who loves you? To a God who will stake his integrity on you. A God who will put the reputation of his name on the line for you. How much more? If a sleeping neighbor who doesn't like you will get up to help you in the middle of the night for the wrong reasons, how much more then will a God who loves you in his gracious goodness give you what you need. Let's pray. Father, why do we forget how good you are? How gracious you are?
how generous you are. May we see your grace as the reason you hear us. May we see your goodness as the reason you say yes and no to us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply this teaching to our lives today so that we can relish in your beauty, that we can see you as good and generous and gracious. Show us your goodness and your beauty. Through pray, amen.